This is One Percent Inspiration, where we explore the untold and overlook stories behind the success of students and alumni research. I'm Jennifer, and I'm Maisha. This podcast is generously supported by the Heart House Good Ideas Fund. Today's guest is Mikhail, or Michael, as he also goes by Dang, a second-year chemical engineering PhD student from the University of Toronto. Michael, thanks so much for being ha- here. Why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you so much for、um, letting me be here today.、Uh, so yeah, my name is Michael Deng. As you mentioned,、uh, people call me Michael.、Um, so I'm originally from Paris, France. So I was born and raised there my whole life, and、um, I'm currently、um, a second-year PhD student、uh, at the University of Toronto, working、uh, with Dr. Molly Shortcut.、Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, at the Donnelly Center, actually,、um, and、um, my project is really focusing on trying to、um, solve an、um, issue around drug delivery for、um, glaucoma, basically.、Mm-hmm. Awesome! Thanks so much. We're so pumped out this conversation with you today.、Um, first, though, can you tell us briefly? You you actually alluded to this being born, raised in Paris or close to Paris.、Um, can you tell us briefly your story leading up to where you are now at U of T? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, as I mentioned, so I、um, I live my entire life in France, and then coming to America was a completely different change of culture, but also a different perspective of life, and, and that's that was completely different for me to be here. But yeah, so I I started、um, my post secondary studies with、um, uh, originally med school actually. So、mm-hmm. I. So in France is a bit different. So you usually、um, after high school, you would、um, you can choose directly to go to med school.、Um, it's it's I know it's a bit different here.、Um, so I started with med school for、um, for two years, and then it didn't really work out. I I really didn't really appreciate it.、Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't have fun there, so I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I, I switch up to.、Um, Um, Bachelor of Biomedical Sciences at the、mm-hmm. University、um, Paris Descartes, and and to be honest, at that time I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So I started to really just explore what I wanted to do. So in the meantime, when I did my biomedical sciences, I also started to like you know go to law school on the side because I just didn't know what I wanted to do. So、wow. I explored. Oh my gosh. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's so. It's I don't know if if like you know you guys had had the same problem back in the days, but、um, I, I feel like for me it's、uh, at that time I was I was seventeen, eighteen, and then I just didn't know what I like, what my interest, what my interest was, and then and I think that that is the hardest thing to do. I think so. That's why I was kind of exploring.、Mm-hmm. So I was a student in a law school,、um, and、mm-hmm. then also a student in biomedical sciences.、Um, And until a certain point, when I finished my bio, bio, bachelor of biomedical sciences,、mm-hmm. I needed to make a decision because、um, I applied for this master of applied physics. Right.、Um, that was at the, the Ecole Normale Supérieure, and、um, basically, what this master was,、um, we call it the Master Erasmus, which is basically、okay. an international master where you can travel from、um, doing your degree. Uh, and study at different places in Europe. So,、mm-hmm. and that's why that's where the trade-off was because I need to either、um, not take that master and continue law school, 
mm-hmm. or, or just like, you know, take the master, but I needed to stop law school because I need to travel and go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, so I did stop law school because I, I, I think one of my biggest passion in life, it's, it's, it's uh, traveling, like discovering other countries and other culture. Um, so the best way to do that is to study and to, to really dive into cultures, like to study in mm-hmm. a country. So I, I started by um, uh, going to Spain for six months uh, in Madrid. Mm-hmm. And I, I studied mostly really like you know, all these um, uh, quantum physics and then a lot of like very, very theoretical physics base. And then I really liked it at that time. I really, really liked it. Mm-hmm. And then I, I switched to, to, I went to the second country doing my master was uh, uh, Poland. So I went to a, a city called Wroclaw, which is like the third biggest city in Poland um, mm-hmm. after Krakow and Warsaw. And same thing. I kind of studied pretty much the same thing there. Um, not much of a quantum physics guy, but I was right. more like a lot of, <laughs> not uh, much of. I love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was more like it was really a lot of uh, microscopy, and then how to build microscopes, and then and like all the optics part of the physics, uh, which I also really, really appreciated. Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of what happened during my master. But one thing was like was really hard. I think. Is that you know after three years of bachelor, um, and then two years of master, I just like, I just didn't know what I wanted to do after that, right? So what I did after that um, was to make a decision about do I want to you know just stop the studies and then and then start getting a job, but then I was not interested in any of the job that is related to physics, so I was like, oh then, like what what can I what can I do then, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so I did, I did think a lot of it, like, and a lot of people was talking about consulting and mm. people, everybody was talking about consulting at the time and they were like, oh, you should do that. And it's like a lot of money. And it's, a, it's also like, you know, can you gain a lot of connections, but, um, but I just didn't know what exactly it was. So I did apply for a consulting job mm. at the time, um, not knowing what I wanted to do, um, but at the same time, I was also wanting to discover something else before I, I finished my master. Yeah. was to know if I really like biomedical engineering. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, I did learn as, um, during co- several conferences during my master, what, like what mm-hmm. was drug delivery, what was like, um, you know, regenerative medicine. Mm-hmm. And then I was just really intrigued about that. So what I decided to do um, at the end of my master was from a master thesis. Mm-hmm. So it was like a, a, year, a year of master thesis. I decided to apply to um, a lab in, in Boston. So yes. it was a lab from uh, Professor Jeff Carr, who is, um, who is uh, an amazing guy. Like um, yes. he's really inspiring. He's a, he's a big professor in Harvard Medical School and mm-hmm. he's very, very passionate about like what he's doing and, I was like looking at his um, at his TED talk the other day, and mm-hmm. I, I, I'm just like I'm just very inspired by by this uh, professor. Right. And I, I so I emailed him. Yes. I emailed him if I, I could do like a master thesis, um, at um, at his lab, and mm-hmm. to kind of for me it was really like you know kind of a, a yes or no for what I'm gonna do after that. Like it's either mm-hmm. I don't like it, so I'm gonna start my consulting job that I wanted to maybe do. Oh, like I do like it and it's great, right? So I went there and then I I was supervised by him, but also um, 
an instructor at the time, but he's now a professor and Dr. Nitin Joshi, mm-hmm. who is uh, who was my main supervisor of my mm-hmm. master's thesis. And he he gave me like this this project um, about trying to like you know deliver locally um, some um, drugs for the osteoarthritis. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what this project was. I had no base of that, but yeah. he was just willing to take me under his his um, in, uh, like under his um, supervision, and he's just like taught me everything so he taught me how to even speak about science how to talk yeah. about science so i don't know if you that's like you so foundational that right that's i totally get it exactly. I mean, I, when i worked at a lab i didn't know how to talk to you know thinking about communicating for context or yeah. what terminology to use or how to ask questions i mean part of it is professional but i think a lab is like a unique professional kind of environment i'm also curious also you're talking about you know, you, you were kind of like this physicist and you were a life scientist and, you know, you did law school. So you came to Harvard Medical School or you, you at least you emailed beforehand. How did you pose yourself to be like the strongest fit or a really strong candidate for the stem cell work or whatever the regenerative medicine work that they were doing with the background you had? I'm just like, I'm just fascinated by that. I actually didn't. So <laughs> what I what I did, I think, I think that. <laughs> I think one one thing that like people should really do, and I think that's what like you know helped me get into his lab, mm-hmm. was honesty. I think honesty is a big thing. I think like you know, for my side was just I was really intrigued by what he was doing. I had no idea if I wanted to continue that field or not, but I was willing to learn and willing to just mm-hmm. you know progress. And I think mm-hmm. that's what people appreciate. It's when they they kind of sense like, you know, this kind of honesty that, you know, sometimes, yes. you know, people, people think that like, you know, there is a kind of a, a type of answer that you need to give during mm. an interview, but you don't really have a type of answer. It's just your answer, right? Mm-hmm. It's your way of saying, saying things. So for me, it was really honesty. I didn't really sell myself or whatever. I, I, I really told him that I had zero experience in that field. Um, and then I was willing to learn and to really just grow in that. Mm-hmm. and and it did pays off it did pay off and then yeah oh my yeah. gosh you're working and, at like the shortcut lab now and doing incredible well, I think it's awesome we're gonna dive into that <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so so that's why that's why it was I don't know it was a really really uh, important for me that step in Boston was a was kind of the a milestone for me in mm-hmm. kind of changing my complete vision of life basically because for me it was okay I finally found something that I appreciate doing you know and I think that was the first thing that happened to me I think so wow yes I I think I think I understand that yeah Jennifer go on Mm -hmm. yeah I think one thing that's interesting I found here even come going from undergrad how you saying that you don't know what you wanted to do and you're figuring out but a lot of people they tend to make the change after they found out or they like made that decision to change into something else but you are just exploring new things and you don't know those things are what you wanted to do either, but you're just diving into that. Like that mindset, it's, it's, I think it's very unique. Yeah. yeah. And it's Thank not you. like, with, it's not like it's easy to do law school on the side while studying biomedical sciences in undergrad, yeah. right? Like, always are, yeah, it's, they're I'm, challenging yeah. ways to dive in and be curious. Um, yeah. There's like a ton of resilience. I think that's the, as Jennifer said, very unique. Really cool. I think another question I have as a follow-up, because you did your undergrad and you realized, I mean, I didn't even know this was a, 
this was an option um, or really a sense of what internationally education models are. You mentioned you had your master's option to study across Europe and get your master's in the earn your master's in the same period of time. And I feel like options like that, if that existed here, like that would be groundbreaking. You know what I mean? Like it's um, like the, the perspective, those models of education are so different. So I'm curious mm-hmm. because you've existed and you've studied so many places, you have a lot of experience in these structured systems. Um, what you've noticed um, as the differences in the education mo- educational models and education system models of Europe versus North America? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I think as you can imagine, there's always like pros and cons, right? In any type of system. Uh, one, one big pros of like Europe in general was just the like accessibility, the easiness of like going to one country to the other, mm. be, mainly because of the like the, the, the Schengen you know, territory, like mm-hmm. the, the whole Europe part where, you know, every university are connected. So it's easier to go to one country to, to the other without doing mm-hmm. any visa process. So, so that, that is really nice. And there is kind of this program called Erasmus that I mentioned mm-hmm. um, that is really, really like popular in France, um, not just in France, in Europe in general, but just students had the opportunity to always do like kind of a semester exchange year, another semester exchange year. It's really, it's a popular thing that people do it for because of like really, it doesn't happen that often in your life. You know, when you're going right. to get a, a job later, it's not that easy to travel to another place and to kind of dive into another culture. Usually like, you know, visit countries just as a tourist. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the biggest pros in terms of just trying to push you to go out, push you to see other countries because it's also easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this kind of like easiness to connect with other universities. I'm not saying here it's hard to connect in America. My opinion is like everybody is really well connected and there's this whole opportunity behind. The only mm-hmm. thing I think is that makes it hard to really dive into another type of education, I would say. It's just because it's not that big of a difference between, you know, you go to to New York or you go here to Toronto and then you go to Vancouver. You don't, you, you want to have that kind of different experience type of feeling, you know, when you go abroad, you know, yeah. you're not really going abroad, right? And, and that's why you, you don't have, even though like a lot of people do co-op and, and do exchange, kind of exchange with another university, it's just a very different experience that they have mm-hmm. compared to what we can have in, in Europe. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would say the pros and cons. And, and here, you know, there's another thing is that people are more in terms of like, you know, the, the, the education part of it. Mm-hmm. I, I find people here are really more... Um, um, passionate like in 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 what they're doing because they specialize so early into what they're doing yes and, and france is like you know as you still broad even even in mastery like you still have a pretty broad you know way of like you know studying stuff so you mm-hmm. still kind of like you know oh i have i like that but i also like that i like mm-hmm. this i like that so you're kind of very um scattered sometimes you know so that's i would i would say that's like the main difference i would say in terms of like the education part of it. 
Hmm. Yeah. You know, we've actually observed, I think we've observed what you're talking about with the broadness. We've had some international guests from um, TU Delft, like she was uh, Maddie Zhang in episode two, she was doing, she's doing a master's in um, engineering aerospace. And she talked about the structure of her, aeros- her of her master's and it seemed super reminiscent to an undergrad degree um, yeah. with like the internship and the courses. Um, and there was definitely a specialization because she knew what she was interested in, but there was still an opportunity to, to, to switch if she really wanted to. Um, and we were noticing that a lot with um, some of the other guests we're seeing in like Switzerland and at ETH Zurich yeah. and whatnot. So I thought that was, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that transitioned perfectly into our next question we want to explore is you, from all of the, these experiences, I think it, you kind of mentioned, you don't know what you were doing. So you tried, you tried everything almost. And I'm just wondering what are some, yeah, and it's, what are some of the motivating factors that made you choose to dive into, you know, your next either education or just an opportunity? What, what, what excites you about it for you to just go straight into it without not hundred percent sure how that's going to turn out? I think it's, um, it's like, you know, what we call like the process of elimination. It's like when you, when you like go into something, but you realize you don't like it and then you move on to the next thing to see if you like it. And I think that's what motivates me a lot. It's, it's, um, it's when I know there's something I don't appreciate. So I'm going to kind of like um, dive into something maybe I would appreciate and try if I, if I'm going to like that, if I don't, I'm going to try something else. And I think it's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's really this kind of exploration of like this constant, you know, diving into new stuff that might interest you, but maybe not. Mm-hmm. But then at least you have this answer, right? At the end, yeah. like not know. Yeah. And I think at the mm-hmm. end, like it's it's what is the most rewarding is like to know at the end that like, oh, I know that I don't like this, you know. But there's also yeah. the other things like I know that I like that, you know. But, but right. maybe just a part of that, you know. Mm. So yeah. that's how I, I kind of discover it, and then that's how I learn. Like really, this part of the moment that switches into my mind when I yeah. finally I have this moment of I, I like that. Mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. the most rewarding moment ever. And for me, that happened in yeah. Boston mm-hmm. when I, I I work with um, um, Jeff Carp and and Nitin Joshi. They were they just like you know opened me doors that I yeah. could never I, I could never imagine before. And, yeah. and and that's that's why through Jeff. That's how I, I met Molly, basically. Yeah. That's how mm-hmm. because Jeff Jeff basically is a is a former student actually of Molly. Mm-hmm. So he's a he's a professor at Harvard, but he was I think one of the first I think PhD student right. that he she has and 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 then I heard about her and then I started to look at what she's doing and and that's how like I, I met um, Molly uh, Molly Shorkett during a conference actually mm-hmm. and then that was uh, that was uh, the most. Uh, amazing moment i remember a uh, stressful moment at the same time because yes, you know bad. when you like something <laughs> that's the that's the other thing when you know that you like something now mm-hmm. and you want to get it because you're like now i know i like that but mm-hmm. now it's about like can i get can i get to that point now right so i think that's the stressful moment of like you know now that you love that don't take this away from me because i really love that you know yeah so, now you have oh. something to lose like yeah i get it exactly oh. yes yeah. You mentioned Professor Jeff Carver again at Harvard Business School, and you also um, referenced before that you learned a lot at Harvard how to be a professional in science almost, right? And how to be a professional mm-hmm. um, about how to talk about science, how to present, like these really foundational things that a lot of students 
sometimes learn in their first internship. It feels like more often than not in like a master's degree, like something that's more immersive. Um, can you give us some of the biggest lessons that you've learned from there that you can impart about how to be like a scientist beyond um, the science part of it? Because there is a lot to it that you've already talked about too. Yeah, I mean, are you asking me more like about, you know, what can we do like out, like outside of just being a scientist, right? Well, I feel a scientist has all of these does a lot of things. I mean, part of it is management. If, if you're, um, if you're a PI, part of it is yeah. collaboration. Part of it is, um, establishing, uh, perhaps closer bonds because those are like the bonds that are going to make sure that you have close relationships with your collaborators and people at your lab. Um, but those are things that like, those are not immediately obvious. Like when I worked at my lab, it took me a long time to figure out how to, how to kind of, you know, how to ask somebody to, for a coffee chat or, um, on a more, more deep level, how to ask for advice more specifically. And also I think sometimes because of the way, at least here, students are at school, like we're praised for being really good we're performing well. And so we have a hard time bringing ourselves to conversations, asking for collaborative feedback, um, and maybe asking for more critical feedback because there's like a certain, there's a certain mindset that's been instilled upon us for some time. Yeah, definitely. So, um, I, d- I definitely think you're absolutely right. You know, when you when you go to to a lab and you work in the lab and you work in science, you you kind of learn a broad like you know amount of skills, like really really huge amount of skills. Going from how do you talk to people, how to communicate with a professor, mm-hmm. how do you how to mentor also like undergraduate students and then even like some like high school students. It's a it's a bunch of skills that you try to acquire and you try to learn it, even though sometimes it can be scary. Like one thing I can tell you definitely it's um is to communicate mm-hmm. like with people. I think I think there's always this kind of vision that you you think you have, like you know, everybody has. And um, you know, we always talk about I don't know if you heard of it, like the, the, the imposter syndrome, right? Yes. We always heard about that, right? You you go to a lab and then you you happy right you really happy you you this is the first day the first week the first month like you really excited mm-hmm. but then you realize you you start to realize you started about doubt about yourself right you start mm-hmm. to be like do I deserve to be right and and everybody goes through that everybody goes through that and and at the end of the day it's about like just just you know accepting these feelings you know accepting that you're gonna you're gonna fail sometimes and sometimes you're also gonna miscommunicate something sometimes you're mm-hmm. also gonna sound ridiculous in a conference and sometimes you're going to completely you know not answer the question right Mm -hmm. there's like Mm -hmm. and i think it's about like just um accepting it and i think that's Mm -hmm. what like i think in terms of graduate students i would say that i know had the hardest time doing is to accepting um things Mm -hmm. it's accepting that you know not everybody's perfect you know accepting that you know like you you may be a graduate student but that doesn't mean you don't know everything, right? Yeah, it doesn't mean you're invisible. <laughs> exactly, you know. And I think people have this image of like, you know, oh, you appear, wow, you must be a, a genius, right? Mm-hmm. You must be incredible. You must like know every answer that I'm asking you, but you don't. And I think like that is the hardest part to do is to accept and to communicate these kind of like fears that you have, right? Because mm-hmm. I think not just like the lab, but in work in general, you always kind of have this kind of silent competition sometimes mm-hmm. which is really unhealthy completely yeah. unhealthy and then 
you know, like, but it's, it's kind of a feeling that a lot of people has. And that's why you develop this moment of like, you know, you don't want to share that kind of feeling, but I think it's, it's important to do it, you know, even though it can be difficult, I think it's important to just share it and to be like, okay, so I'm very stressed, stressed out about the conference tomorrow. I don't know if I'm going to make it. Mm-hmm. I'm very stressed out about the experiment that I'm doing. Like I, I'm very, I don't know if this is, this makes sense. And right. I think it's important to really, you know, communicate this kind of thing because that's how you, you kind of get help to, you know, because right. sometimes you just, you're making incredible connection with that because, mm-hmm. you know, it's by sharing your vulner- vulnerabilities that you actually connect with people, you know, mm-hmm. at the end of the day. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah, for sure. Me and Maisha, we discuss about this all the time where in usually like in group socials, it's hard to be that first person to take that first step to say, I'm stressed. I had a bad week. Right. But once right. you do that, that's where other people start to sharing and you start to open all these things up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. So with yeah. all of that, after you aha moment from Boston, that leading you coming to U of T, mm-hmm. how did you navigate it that period? I think moving to Canada during um, COVID, which is a very challenging time. How, yeah, how did you adapt to that? It was, it was really hard. Like, I will tell you, like, right now, it was really, really hard. I think mm-hmm. for me, like, first time in Canada, maybe not first time in America, but first time in Canada. And and also not knowing where I was, never been to Toronto before. And, and then just mm-hmm. completely, like, having no zero connection. I had, like, you know, one or two friends um, that I knew from Boston that are living here. Like, you know, I was really lucky about that. But then still, like, the pandemic made it really hard. I think, like, you know, I couldn't go to, like, courses mm-hmm. in person. I couldn't, I couldn't like, even have uh, meetings with my professor in person. Mm-hmm. Like, I was having meetings virtually. It was really, really hard for me to, to come here and then to kind of be isolated. But at the same time, I was really lucky to be in a wet lab rather than in the dry lab. Because yes. wet lab forced us to come and to like you know at least have a minimal amount of you know contact with like your colleagues so that was really really nice um but even though i think like that was really um i would say for me depressing at the time uh when i started like i think the first few months was the the worst but you know like that's where i started to really kind of find um outlets you know trying Mm -hmm. to find things that will you know makes me like you know feel better you know such as know doing sports or or trying to like you know i had that's what we were talking about right so i had mm-hmm. um so i decided to also do that do that second master like in entrepreneurship on the side really mm-hmm. because i knew I, I would have the time to do that mm-hmm. because i knew that like that will bring me like this kind of outlet that i needed because i don't consider this master as a as a master for me i remember mm-hmm. like for me it was just just you know taking courses on coursera physically right. you know mm-hmm. and and, and yeah. I, I really appreciate that so that kind of saved me a lot you know in mm-hmm. terms of like my mental health I think like this master was really important for me to you know even by night you know sometimes I couldn't sleep that well but I was like oh let's let's mm-hmm. just watch a video of like you know what is a business plan 
right? I know mm. this is sound like is that how you the most asleep? ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But, wow. For me, that was that was really important for me to have that, and of, of course, that's where like you know you um, when I started to go into this networking event online, um, meeting mm-hmm. other people mm-hmm. to maybe have to found a startup and this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where I I started to really um, appreciate kind of this pandemic this whole pandemic movement you know even mm-hmm. though it was really tough mm-hmm. but I could have things that I, I could focus on you know not just my PhD but like you know things that also you know like appreciate on the side right? right like you don't need to you can have like several interests you don't need to have one interest right so that's why I wanted to mm-hmm. um to really explore all this stuff and and, and that's where I I, I met this uh, couple of people doing a networking event and mm-hmm. And we um, we started to kind of be part of several um, entrepreneurship like incubator program to to right. kind of like understand if like there's an opportunity behind our technology and how can we you know you know learn from that experience and how to grow up from that basically and so that's mm-hmm. why all these experience networking events this massive entrepreneurship was really really a big outlet for me and I think that helped me so much in terms of you know being dealing my my all this situation basically you know being i think being alone in the new country that's um that is a very very tough i think Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so yeah uh yeah so so i think like that was pretty much it and in terms of like you know the, the the understanding the culture and finding communities i think i think like i i it was really hard at the beginning, but after a year when things started to like open up a bit, mm-hmm. so I really started to like go to like this, you know, volleyball um, uh, games with yeah. uh, some friends. And then yeah. that's where I started to really feel better and to find this kind of yeah. balance, you know, mm-hmm. norm- like this kind of normality. And then mm-hmm. I, I really, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You, so. Some... Oh yeah, go on. You can go on, Jennifer. Um, yeah, just a quick question on what are some cult- difference in culture that you noticed? That's a really, really good question. And that's something I, I always think about and I talk a lot about, <laughs> like, about that with people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a lot of things. A lot of difference things in culture between Europe and here? Versus, I wouldn't or... say Europe. I would say France and here. Okay. I would yeah. notice that because I think it's hard to generalize Europe, right? Fair enough. Like it's, it's a it's a such a big territory mm-hmm. but between france and canada um there's definitely a huge culture gap. Mm-hmm. like it's a it's um and there's bad things good things and like whatever you can call it yes um, one thing that i appreciate here and that was one of the reasons I, I came here was um i found people very um um career driven and i i really appreciate that i think People are wow. people think big and 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 I and people have dreams and then have dreams that that uh-huh. sometimes where I come from in France people will call it crazy sometimes and I think that's mm. that's what I appreciate here is like thinking that you know like you can achieve you can sometimes achieve like crazy dreams that you can mm. have you know and I think that's that's that was a really really good point for me to come to come here um, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of like. I think one big difference that was um, hard for me, it's the, I would say the social life. I think socially speaking, um, 
people a bit different uh, here versus uh, here in Canada versus France. Um, yeah. It's easier in France to really kind of you know after a day of work like buy a beer and then talk flowers and flowers and oh. you know until midnight and you still didn't have dinner but it's okay things are fine it's in the yeah. middle of the week mm-hmm. here yeah. it's a bit different you know mm-hmm. people are more really like you know there's a schedule there's um there's things to do i i scaled that at seven so i'm gonna do that at seven which is yes. really well organized i'm not saying mm-hmm. that yeah. this super super nice as a quality but then you know sometimes in social life it's it's it lose that kind of like spontaneity right yeah. like it's kind of spontaneous mm-hmm. type of like oh let's go out let's go out let's just talk you know <laughs> you know yeah um, that's really true yeah. I, I think i think that's the biggest thing i noticed also like you know i don't know if you guys noticed but like booking a restaurant sometimes is like really hard like i i, I gotta take right. like weeks in advance to book a table sometimes yes. and that never happened to me in france like people just huh. go there and show up right and, and here is like <laughs> when people tell me like oh, i booked something on the 23rd of like march 2024 i'm like calm down yeah i think that that was yeah. the biggest thing that that was yeah. uh, very hard for me like uh, to yeah. schedule and to plan and to lose that spontaneity uh-huh. i think yeah i've noticed yeah, this me. a lot in the way that um plans with friends like you mentioned social life right with with online um changes booking calls with friends i mean i the friends who are closest to me i'll just call them like jennifer knows this i'll just call her any time of the day (laughs) if she doesn't pick up Misha does send me um calendar invites sometimes she will like book book me for part of the day and we'll schedule calls so that organized lifestyle is definitely something that's true that's true i do i do admit to that but i understand like it can be you know there's it's like there's a distinction between the people who you can just call any time of the day and then mm-hmm. uh, and then the people you have to schedule time with because they just they just don't adapt to the norms because th- maybe the closeness isn't there um maybe that norm it, that is common in France is just not mm-hmm. here so um we haven't established it um that is something that has bothered me though for sure for, like for social calls definitely um even my culture like I'm from Bangladesh and I when I was a kid pre-covid of course when I was a kid um there would be like people from my cultural community they would just come by and if they happened to be in the neighborhood they would just bring their whole family and then just they I mean I would look out the window and there would be a family out there and then they would come and everyone would be in a scramble but it would be really fun right because it's spontaneous and suddenly you have a time for connection um but I don't think that would happen like I wouldn't go to my friend's house right now like for no reason without telling them I don't think so I, I totally agree and I think that's what happened also in France is like you know people are have this thing of like you know you're in the neighborhood and you come and then yeah that's okay you know yeah it's okay to not having something perfect at a table to prepare for it's okay you can come up even if it's a bit dirty it's okay you know like it's fine and i I think here i I, I just feel like it's just people are busy Mm -hmm. you know what i I think people are just busy and and because they are busy and they have they need to have control onto the schedule right and and i think we all want we all want this kind of control on a lot of stuff we mm. want to like control yeah. our time control our this control that control our break but i think mm. sometimes it's like the 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 kind of like feeling of like controlling the the, the, the need mm. to control it i think it's makes you lose control actually that's why i mm-hmm. think it's sometimes it's like kind of contradictory it's like you want to control things but at the same time you lose kind of the moment the presence of the moment and the spontaneity the, right. all the spontaneous feelings you might mm. have right saying like i want to yeah. oh you know what today i want to go to a tie today 
but mm -hmm. it's really hard to do that now here i feel like like for, sometimes i feel that i'm like oh i really want to go yeah. to thai restaurant mm -hmm. but i can't i need yeah. to i need to i need to predict to that wouldn't mm -hmm. exactly yeah. i need to book it yeah you know? so there's a big difference in that mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. That's a really, I think that's a really great insight, like the organized lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, another thing you, we kind of talked to you when you, you talked about meeting your co-founders um, at a networking event, and then yeah. you started up SMS Nanotech. So can you dive a little bit deeper into that, that interaction and then how you determined, you know, this, these are the people I'm going to build this thing with, you know, making sure your value systems align and also like your operational systems align. Cause that's a really big thing. It's almost like, you know, I've, I've, um, I fought, I'm on Twitter a lot and I follow a lot of venture capitalists and, um, uh, one of them, uh, says, you know, being co-founders is like being in a marriage. So it's a really big deal because you're in this like legal agreement. So I'm really curious to hear about how you went through that process um, when thinking about it and also of course like leading up to the co the founding and, and what your company is doing now absolutely so i when i went to these networking events i didn't expect any of that i i, I want to go there i want to meet people get inspired from people and you know kind of knowing what the mentality is and 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 then i met i met this um this postdoc and at times research associate actually uh, from sunnybrook who had whose sister actually as a she's a professor at McGill uh, had had this technology that that they wanted to thinking about commercializing and then they're thinking about making as a product and what what can I do and I'm really interested about like kind of finding team members and then want to want to start start from there and I at that time I really didn't think about like you know something like that I I just. Yeah. I just like, okay, we can talk and we can discuss and, and we'll see what we do from there, right? And I, I did meet her at some point um, through a Zoom, a Zoom call, actually. And she explained her, her, like her technology that like, you know, that she got patent, like a, she got a patent on that and that she's thinking about commercializing that and trying to see like, you know, if there's something, some kind of area that would make sense to commercialize that. And that's where um, we started to collaborate. So mm -hmm. at the beginning, it was really not formal at all. Yeah, it yeah. Really you're just hashing out an idea, of... like as you're trying to see if it's workable. If you exactly if it happen it's just discussion, discussion mm -hmm. based, and and what can we do? And let's apply to this. Let's apply to that. Let's mm -hmm. talk to this person. And then that's how we started. That's how we started to think about like you know, oh maybe we can go to you know one of these accelerator program, right? There's like several ones. There's mm -hmm. one like we we did participate to one uh, which is called Lab to Market from Marsh University, mm -hmm. and there's another one uh, McGill which is called Centec, um, uh, um, which is an accelerator at McGill. So we 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 started to apply for that and we got in, and then we started to just be part of an entire you know system where you know people had these kind of ideas and this kind of technology that they had mm -hmm. and they wanted to also commercialize it so it was like a whole thing that i didn't even expect right like we started to yeah. to apply but we didn't expect to even be accepted you know we didn't we haven't even thought about it and then that's where things started when mm -hmm. things really got serious i would say like you know when you start to get um into this kind of program you need to have you need to accomplish a bunch of milestones every week and you need to like you know pitch it at some mm -hmm. point you need to pitch your ideas pitching and pitch, you continue to pitch and continue to train, make slides, communicate with people, knowing how to communicate. 
and all this thing went so fast that I didn't even have the time to process like what is it to be a co-founder for mm-hmm. me it was like really something that is that just happened You're just doing it because exactly mm-hmm. because I was just you know we just like discussing and we had a lot of great discussion a lot of great insights and exchange and that's where like things started to be just more serious and then and think about like oh wow maybe we need to think about like you know having a bank account for the mm-hmm. company because or yes. think, you know all these things <laughs> that you never really think until it actually gets real right and then yeah. and then so that's where we start to even apply for pitch competition that's where like yes. you know i applied for this um for this pitch um uh, this called pitch perfect you know it was organized by h2i uh, yes it's to i exactly mm-hmm. So and we, and we won that competition. I, I, we didn't really expect to to win anything at mm-hmm. that, at that yeah. thing, but it was a, a big training for us. Like we need yes. to pitch something in five yeah. minutes and answer questions. But then when we won something, we were like, "Oh, okay, this is getting real right now." So yeah. that's how oh things really started, you know, basically. Yeah. And, and and that was really recent, still, right? Like we yeah. we mm-hmm. met we met um, I, I believe last april so that's mm-hmm. where we started to talk and discuss wow. and then we discussed mm-hmm. until like you know we discussed until july and then and, and, and august and we started to apply during that time july august was the application moment for all the mm-hmm. accelerator and we and we 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 get the notices that we got in like in september and then that's what i think september 2021 was mm-hmm. really the moment where things really got like just picked up we had a lot of courses, a lot of meeting with people. Uh, we need to meet this person, do like some customer analysis, some uh, business model canvas, mm-hmm. all these things that, you know, we never heard of, right? Yes. And that's why we, we really need to apply. And at my side, I was like applying the thing that I was learning at the same time in my master mm-hmm. towards this accelerator program. For me, it was a win-win, basically. So wow. that's how it happened, basically. And then... And now we like just in the process of continuing to maybe um, found, we really want to continue to have some non-dilutive um, funding mm-hmm. first mm-hmm. and then to really go into like, you know, other kind of opportunities to maybe raise money like from like angel yeah. investors and stuff like that. Basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You really like, let your experience guided you. It's not like a, like a specific role or something you're working towards. You're taking it one step at a time. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 basically what I I say to you, right? It's being spontaneous. Yeah. That's what I call. I, yeah. Sometimes it can be bad and good though, because sometimes you can take on too much, and you mm. realize, okay, that might be too much, right? So, yeah. but it's better to be like, okay, realizing that it's too much, and you start to like, you know, eliminate this and that, mm-hmm. rather than just like, you know, being frustrated of like, you know, I have time. I wanna I wanna learn some stuff, right? Like I don't know what, right? right. So yeah. that's why for me it was really this kind of experience to to kind of like oh I didn't expect to to start this kind of thing, but then I really appreciate it. So why not doing it? You know. Mm-hmm. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about what the the work of the startup is? Um, it seems like it's sure. research oriented to like research to bench to bedside or maybe research to commercial markets. So the technology is actually um, a technology for McGill. Um, so it's a technology about like um, a rapid testing device. Um, more specifically, it was like kind of a mini version of the PCR you would have now for COVID. Mm-hmm. And the first disease that we wanted to focus on, it's, um, it's actually COVID because it was the hot topic at the time. 
Um, but what we basically designed was kind of this um, microfluidic based chip where you can actually have a whole entire process of PCR in just like less than 10 minutes, basically. So that's why mm -hmm. we could we could basically um, build a PCR, which has had the same accuracy as the PCR you can find now mm -hmm. in the market, which would take like 24 hours to 72 to get the results. But for mm -hmm. us, we could create something and get the results in, in, in less than 10 minutes. So that mm -hmm. was really the main point of our thing. Um, we did like it was not something focused on COVID at the beginning, not at all. Like it was really kind of a device to show that we could um, perform a PCR at a very like fast pace, mm -hmm. an accurate pace, accurate level. And, and we started then like using COVID as like saliva sample to show that we could do that even with saliva, basically. Mm -hmm. And that's how we, like people get interested in it. And then that's how we started to like, you know, try to pitch that kind of idea to people. And even though at the beginning, we didn't intend it to, to pitch it like, you know, for like, you know, detection of rapid COVID. It was more for really like rapid detection for labs in general right. to, replace, to replace the current PCR. Okay. That was the point. Yeah, this does seem like a good time for testing technology, though. <laughs> it so is. So, yeah, it was a kind of a, yeah. It's a, like it's in, in of terms of change. social environment, right? For pitching, like it's a good story. Exactly, exactly. So there's a whole part of like, you know, making the story into like, you know, what is good for the moment. So that's why, yeah, yeah the technology was there. But then, you know, you can pitch it in so many different ways where you can mm -hmm. find problems and find a need behind and, and, and try to solve that right mm -hmm. so. yeah yeah so and on the side of of this startup learning about entrepreneurship and you're also a phd student so going, yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> you tell us a little bit about your i guess current research and sure. just the field in general and what really excites you about it sure so when i come into the lab um so I, my project kind of took a turn of it. So at the beginning, when I came, um, I was supposed to um, focus on the osteoarthritis because I did work on that when I was in Boston. So, so it was kind of bringing my experience here and try to complete um, a project that would happen here. Um, it didn't work out that way. Um, um, so I, I needed to switch my project because of funding. Uh, so I switched it to uh, the uh, disease of um, uh, the eye. So that's because a big part of like the shortcut lab was really focused on uh, eye disease, especially mm. age macular degeneration. Um, there's also like retinal detachment. And then for me, I was really interested by um, delivering something from the outside of the eye. I think mm. that I think having, because um, Professor Mola shortcut, she's really focused on, on using um, a natural polymer, you know, like the hyaluronic acid to mm -hmm. kind of develop, you know, any type of technology, whether it's hydrogel or maybe particles or to, to, to try to try to answer different issues. So um, I, I really thought about like, you know, can we use that actually for the outside of the eye? Because if you mm -hmm. look at, you know, what's happening in clinic, you know, when you have dry eye or some like, you know, any drops have, you know, yeah, ironic acid, right? To use that. So that's where I started to like explore the path. Can I deliver better current um, drugs um, in front of the eye, basically? So my mm -hmm. project is really to design 
and nucleotide polymer using the hyaluronic acid uh, to deliver um, anti-glaucoma drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so glaucoma as being like, you know, um, a very, um, it's like a lifelong disease, you know, when you have chronic glaucoma, it's like, you know, people, patient takes drops of, of, of beta blockers of prostaglandin right. analogs for the entire life. And, and, and we wanted to see like if we, there is a better way to do that, right? And people have been inventing, inventing some stuff. Like there mm-hmm. are a company called like Ripple Therapeutics, for example, in Toronto, who, who invented that kind of intracamel implant, you know, into the eye and then release for a long time this like prostaglandin analogs. That is amazing. And so that, that was the same type of question we want to answer. But this time with like hyaluronic acid, can we deliver better um, these drugs that we use clinically and from the front of the eye and to kind of help patient have a better time with the treatment? Because right now with the treatment they have, they usually have like a lot of irritation, blood vision, all this problem with toxicity because of mm-hmm. like, you know, how, how the eye, you know, like how, when you put a drop of, of very highly concentrated drug and like basically a big part of the drug will go into your blood system because mm-hmm. it doesn't stay on the front of the eye. So mm-hmm. the point of my project is really to increase that like residence time of these drugs onto the front of the eye to kind mm-hmm. of increase that like therapeutic efficacy behind basically. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, hyaluronic hy- 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 acid. Um, yeah. I've seen that on skin products. <laughs> so it's, it seems like the same product. Is there, can, like, why would that be in a skin product? Like, what is the chemical makeup or the behavior of it that makes it really good for your skin? So think about like hyaluronic acid is something that you find in like the entire body. Like, it's, it's like in the extracellular matrix. It's like something that is incredible, like, like a natural like polymer that is part of your own human body, right? Mm-hmm. And like, you know, of course, in terms of cos- cosmetic, like what happened is that, um, especially in terms of hydration, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, people uh, love this polymer because it does do a lot in terms of hydration. It keeps the mm-hmm. water longer onto the skin. And, and that's why it's something that people are very interested by that, you know, because, oh, you know, okay. your skin get dry really fast, right? Yeah. Especially now with the, with the cold and stuff. And people are very interested by, by looking at hyaluronic acid to kind of retain that water onto the surface of, of your of your skin, mm-hmm. um, d- use, using viscosity, of course. Mm-hmm. But then, uh, what makes it interesting is like really the biocompatibility behind, and also the biodegradability. That's why oh. people use it a lot for drug delivery, or for like you know scaffold, or because it just doesn't kill like cells, it, it's not mm. toxic for you, you know? Mm. So that's why as being inherent of your body, yeah. it's something that was never, that was never, that is like really interesting to work on. Right. That's why, that's why cosmetic is really popular. Eye drop is really yes. popular. Um, people have been inventing glue, um, like, you know, surgical glue or yes. like, it's like a lot of different possibilities you can use with this uh, polymer. That's so interesting. Cool. So maybe we'll discover more things like this and continue to like, I mean, you, yeah, products. yeah, you definitely, you can even, <laughs> I think I'm pretty sure you go to Sephora and they're going to tell you that they're going to say like, <laughs> Oh yeah. Most of our products is from like made of, you know, like acid. And mm-hmm. you know, we have this, like it's retained water so well. And, and right. That's, that's basically why. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Um, what do you think are some of the challenges in, in your field? 
um, maybe with your work or just what you're, what you think is, yeah, like you've talked about the potential so far. I think the challenge is not just in, not just my field, but like in, in kind of this um, engineering field in general is, is really to, um, to look at, you know, what is relevant at the end, you know, mm-hmm. are you really answering a problem? And I think that is the most difficult part of like any pro- any any scientific project, you know, because mm-hmm. you kind of have this this thing of like you have a degree to complete, right? You need to finish that degree, you need to like publish papers, or you need mm-hmm. to do something with this degree. At the same time, you you thinking about can I, you know, change something outside? You know, can I make it to the market? Can I commercialize that? Can I change something? Mm-hmm. Am I solving a problem, right? And I think that is the biggest problem, the issue right now. It's just because you're kind of limited by the constraint of a PhD, a degree or whatever. Mm-hmm. Sometimes like a, a lot of time that I see in, uh, in a lot of labs and a lot of in research in general is that a lot of people publish or have projects about things that are not that relevant. Mm-hmm. And I think this is because of like, not understanding well the problem mm-hmm. and not defining well the problem. It's because like entrepreneurship. Like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But for me, doing a PhD, it's actually be, being an entrepreneur is the mm-hmm. same thing for me. It's really, you got to be careful with schedule. Like, are you have a timeline? You have a timeline, you got to do all these milestones up to this timeline. But then you need, you need to define this problem, right? You got to define a problem that is real. So you got to, you got to maybe um, in the field of biomedical engineering, you got to interview maybe surgeons, doctors, understand what's going on. Uh, sometimes you're, gonna, you're even going to have contact with patients. So you would say like, oh, is that a problem for you? And, mm-hmm. and of course, there's all this bias behind, right? People mm-hmm. sometimes would say, yes, I think this is a problem. But then you cannot just believe on that person. Because right. It's a biased view, right? Yes. I think what's what's the hardest part of a PhD and, and in anything is to define an actual problem and to solve an actual problem. You mm-hmm. know? And I think that's sometimes missing in academia because of all this constraint of publication. Mm-hmm. You sometimes got to publish something that is, or even work on something that is not that relevant, you know, for right. you know the outside world. I would say. That's a really interesting point. I actually recently watched a video um, from Simon Clark, who's a PhD in geophysics, I think from um, England. I don't know. He's like, there's kind of like an academic YouTube community. And so I've I've tried to like tap into that. And he's recently released a video where he read the top 100 scientific papers of all time. And the way he rated that was by citations. most of the papers were biomedical sciences and most of those papers in biomedical sciences were all about techniques to, to, to do research. So like one of the top research paper of all time, I think was about assays for protein. Um, and all of them were techniques. None of them were really that much. So about, um, theories. And I think it's very telling to what you're saying, like, what are the problems? And at the time when these papers were released, the problems were, how do we do research better, which is why they achieved such success. I think that's a really good point because at the end of the day, I think, to be honest, I think you spend more time about defining the problem than actually working on how to solve it, you know, because mm-hmm. I think if from the get-go, you're not defining a real problem, I think you're going to have, no matter what, 
huge challenges to try to solve a known problem, basically. So yeah. I think that's a really important part of the PhD for that. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. So we do have a few more questions we want to explore. Sure. But before that, I think we'll take a short break and go into our lightning round. So Meisha, mm -hmm. whenever you're ready. Yeah. So I'll ask you a bunch of questions um, and I'll try not to respond so we can keep it nice and short. And the goal is to kind of answer them as quickly as possible. And we sent them ahead of time. So hopefully you've had some time to think about them. The first question okay. is, um, there are three, what are the three resources that every researcher should take advantage of? I would say definitely, um, the professor, the PI, I think that's the biggest resource you can have because this person will take you really far. And then conferences, seminars, the access of that is incredible in university. Mm -hmm. And the last thing are the networking events because networking events are not that common when you're outside of university so i mm. think that is really really important to take advantage of awesome thanks next one what movie book or podcast do you recommend the personal happiness as a movie i don't know if you know that movie but like i think this movie it's amazing um, it's uh, it's well recommended highly recommended okay um the next one, what life-changing item did you buy for less than $50? So I thought about it a lot about this question. Um, <laughs> I would say, actually, I would say mojito. And you're going to see why I say that. It's because um, thanks to this mojito, I, 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 I met my partner like that. And that was like life-changing for me. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. What is the story behind the item? I love that. A cocktail. Uh, so okay. I, I wanted to take her on a on a date and, and just to, you know, chat and, and know each other. And I invite her to like this, this bar, like King Taps, um, mm -hmm. that's far from the, In the financial Street. district. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I, and I, I, we talked for a while, for a long, long time around this mojito. And then, and that's how we like everything started. And we've been living together since then after that. Awesome story. Yeah. 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 Next question: What are the unex What are some unexplored or underrated resources from for anybody, not just students? Um, I would say Coursera. I think, I think everybody should, like you know, on their own time, be curious and and go like see. You know, there's a lot of free courses. Yes, so yes. Go explore that. You know, and go like look at you know what you can learn there learn learning i think learning mm -hmm. in coursera is important i think yeah great answer i think some of the if the course is popular enough especially the mit or uh, harvard undergrad courses they just have their own websites and they just have oh, yeah. the infrastructure to enroll public students um next yeah. question what's the biggest area of growth you've experienced in your journey from undergraduate to phd self exploration I think it's um, it's 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 for me it was the most important thing to to know myself more and more. I, I still don't know myself until now, but I definitely mm -hmm. know myself more now than five years ago. I would say. Yeah, it feels like a life journey, right? Like the whole goal is just to get a better sense of what's inside, but also what's outside, <laughs> and that's exactly. what you've been doing too. Um, exactly. Next question: What has been your most rewarding experience as a researcher? 
Um, I, I, I really think mentoring. I think like, you know, as a researcher, you get a mentor, you know, young researchers, mm -hmm. you know, are, and I think that was the most, like, you know, I, I, I mentored several undergraduates before, and I, I really appreciate that. I, I think I, I love mentoring, and I think I, I don't know, I think it's like kind of passing on to some kind of heritage, you know, I know it's old oh school, God. but you know, it's, it's, it's really cool, I think, I find it, mentoring is, uh, it's really rewarding as a researcher, I think. I love that passing heritage. I love, I mean, I think traditions have their place definitely. So I like that a lot. Next one. Yeah. Um, what would you be doing if not this? Nothing, nothing else. <laughs> I would say, because like, if I, if I would be doing something else, that means I'm not in a good path. I would have, I would have do some, that's why I'm doing this master and also this <laughs> PhD and also this, right? So nothing else. That's an iconic that. answer. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And last question. What is your favorite quality about yourself? I would say uh, perseverance. I think like it's something I, I appreciate about me. It's um, I know it sounds like very like narcissistic and stuff, but then it's just like I, I, I think I love I just hate giving up. And I think mm -hmm. that's something I never do. I think giving up it's is you don't you don't learn anything from giving up, I feel that's why I, I think I, it's perseverance differently yeah I think that's a very that's a very strong trait mm -hmm. thanks for sharing <laughs> so that will wrap up our lightning round um and we'll move back to regular programming Jennifer you want to take the next one yeah so this question Yamesha really excited to explore with you about is in one of the article you said that you did not understand your parents' view at the time, and you still don't. And they believe that you need to do things for money, not passion. And this comes off a context where I think that's where you just um, switched from medical school to to your another under to pursue another undergrad degree. And so, and by pursuing research as well as as your pathways, um, what are some I guess, trade-off between choosing interest versus financial security or even other aspects that were society values. How do you prioritize different criteria when choosing different opportunities? That's an excellent question. Um, I think, I think, you know, like that, that's the answer to that question is it's really like depending on who you're talking to. Right. And, and for me, it's, um, coming from a, fair, a fairly poor family, um, of course, like money, like you're kind of realizing that money is important in life, right? Mm -hmm. Money is, uh, is really important and you, you got to have money to, to eat or to live in a good place. And to, right. right, for access to a lot of things too. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of realizing that coming when you come from a pretty poor family. Um, but then there's a fine line between, you know, like financial security and, and passion. And I think that's something that like for myself being raised in an Asian family, um, not that, not I'm the same, like all Asian are like that. It's really just really mm -hmm. maybe a problem with family. It's just my family really values a lot of, you know, financial security for them. Mm -hmm. That was the main mm -hmm. thing. You know, they didn't, they never went to college. They never went to high school um, for like the dream was me to become like 
a doctor, a lawyer, and, and, right. and to like have a really secure path, right? You kind yes. of have a secure path when you have, mm-hmm. and and for them, when when I when it didn't work out for me, when I when I switched it, they saw this as mm-hmm. as being being spoiled. You know, why would you do that? You know, why mm-hmm. would you even make this type of choices, right? Um, and I think that's something that I. It was. I, I think it was really hard at the time because, for me, like. Mm-hmm. For me, it's really if you're not, um, not, not I'm saying passionate, but if you don't, you don't like something a lot, you're never yeah, like going to succeed. For me. Mm-hmm. You're never going to succeed. You can have mm-hmm. this whatever financial mm-hmm. financial security you think you have, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, mm-hmm. this will present nothing, mm-hmm. right? Like even though, as I say, money is still important, right? But then. You know, is it going to be as important as doing something that you really like, right? So you need to have kind of this balance of like, yes, money is important. So that's why you got to study. You got to have a kind of a stable type of, you know, education. But at the same time, would you sacrifice something you you might like a lot for for some sort of financial security that is so mm-hmm. subjective, right? Financial mm-hmm. security doesn't mean, like, means so so many different things mm-hmm. depending mm-hmm. on people right mm-hmm. and, yes. and i think that's for me like was a was the biggest moment was really to i i really want to do something that i want to do not because my parents told me to do and i think that was a mm-hmm. that was um the hard part of it because at the same time you kind of think about money you know like yeah. you did the right path for that it's right? still high up on the ranking system like it's still important um exactly what else do you yeah. consider? Like you talked, you know, we talked a little bit about general alignment with your values and how you operate. Um, and then also a little, a little bit about how you think about financial security. What else do you think about when you consider your next opportunity? Maybe when you thought about doing your PhD here or um, when you thought about your master's at HB, um, Harvard, Harvard Medical School. I think for me is progress. Can you progress in this type of field? Like, I understand you always, you, you can tell me that you're always learning something in any type of job, you know, but what I was looking for was, can I learn more and more every single day? You know, can I do an incredible, an incredible amount of progress every single day? Can I learn new stuff every single day? And I'm not saying that med school didn't give me that. I'm not saying that. I'm not, mm-hmm. absolutely not. I'm saying more that like, I think for me, the, the research part of it mm-hmm. was kind of the innovation part of it that I really liked. Mm-hmm. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, you, you, you gotta innovate and you can innovate, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, maybe medicine, like I'm, I'm not too familiar with, right? Like, I, I, I don't know if you can really innovate, but from what I heard at the time, I was 18, right? I was 17 or 18. Mm-hmm. For mm-hmm. me, I didn't see this kind of innovation right i didn't see like what can i do there you know in mm-hmm. this path you know mm-hmm. but what i wanted to do is like can i innovate and learn something and and and, and improve society like make a difference yeah. somewhere yes. you know yeah and, and and i think that's what i i value a lot is like so that's why i i, I can't do uh, yeah. like you know this type of jobs that like these nine to five jobs of I, I cannot do that i need to have yeah like you know some sort of freedom in mm-hmm. what i want to do and how do i want to work sometimes i work until 3 a.m sometimes i work until 12 p.m can i do that you know right and i think and i think you know 
entrepreneurship can give me the freedom of doing that you know mm -hmm. you know yeah. of course becoming a doctor opening your own practice you can have your own hours i'm not saying that yeah. but for me right. it was just you know maybe i would give you another a completely other point of view if it was the system of med school was um like similar to canada mm. like the thing is like after high school at 17 for me it's it's hard to say like i want to dedicate my life to something like yes. i was not mature it's really hard yeah. you know so mm. for me it was um it wasn't just not a no-go for me at that time yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, when I first met Jennifer, I asked her a question that I think maybe I know the answer for you. You're, I know your answer, I think. But I asked her, um, if you when you think about your future, would you prefer to have one where the job you had, like you loved very much um, and that but it took up a lot of your time or something? It was very high impact, maybe, but also very kind of big source of energy was required. Or would you prefer being in a job where. Um, maybe it was like a tradition, more traditional nine to five and you liked it, but it wasn't like the strongest passion, but maybe, you know, it was, it was time bound and you could do what you loved a lot on the evenings or in the weekends. And I think everybody generally like, you know, maybe we're growing, maybe the, the general rhetoric is that, oh, you should think about one, but generally people kind of have a preference between the two. And it sounds like you're really kind of like, there's this like certain not obsession, but like there's a certain hope for like being immersed with the work you do because you like it so much. Um, I definitely like relate to that a lot, but I think it's a question that everyone generally has to answer for themselves at some point, usually around graduation and when they think about what they're going to be doing in the working world. I think it's absolutely like true what you're saying. And, and I think one thing that people forget at the end of the day, is that financial security comes with interest. Like, if you don't have your interest, like, if you have your interest, if you know what you want to do, that's where the financial security will come, whether you become a pianist or, or like, a, a baker or, like, whatever you want to do, right? Because what you want to do is to be really good at it because you love it so much, right? So that's, I think, if people kind of switch that mentality at some point to be like, you know, it's not about the job, but it's more about, like, what you love and how do you create yeah. to make it then a financial security that's where you know i think the the success will will, wow. will be understood i think yeah i think then this transition perfectly into our next question what is your definition of success uh, and uh, yeah that's a great question and i think you know you always have this I always like this kind of code that I always uh, have it in my notebook. It says, you know, people always say yeah. success is a journey and not, not a destination. I think it's really true. You know, I think you, mm -hmm. you, you always, I think for me, if you want me to give one word to success, it's just like perseverance. That's what success is for me, you know, mm -hmm. because I think, like success comes with the fact that you know you want to you want to continue to do what you want but then it's also about like being happy in what you want right mm -hmm. you know if you're not happy mm -hmm. no matter what you do you're never going to be successful and i think you know that's why i love this movie so much about we're talking about that uh, the pursuit of happiness because mm -hmm. i think this is a great name for that it's about i think life it's about pursuing that happiness and i think 
yeah. when you do pursuing that happiness, this process of pursuing that is what we call success for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's because you have this willingness to, 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 to continue to find what makes you happy because sometimes it's okay to be like, today that makes me happy, but tomorrow that, that mm-hmm. won't make me happy. Mm-hmm. But then it's about like continue to find that. So then what yeah. tomorrow makes me happy, right? And I think that's what yeah. success means for me. Yeah. For so then how would you define that that happiness? Like what and how, how has that changed over time from undergrad to now? I'm sure because of a lot of the growth you experienced and a lot of things you discovered about yourself. How has the definition of happiness changed over time for you? Another difficult question. <laughs> yeah, it's a difficult but a great one. Um, like at the end of the day, it's, it's since my undergraduate, I decided to do what I want to do. And I think even though it sometimes it was bad choices, sometimes mm-hmm. I ended up like in labs that I didn't like at all. Mm-hmm. But then you're happy about that choice. You know why? Because it was your own choice. And mm-hmm. I think that's what makes a difference is that you, you have your own choices. You decided based on you, not based on the society. Yeah. not based on people around you, not your family, not your partner. It's just you, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what, like, it makes you successful, right? And I think that's what is the most important thing, I think, makes your own choices. Yeah, it sounds a lot like, for you, happiness is autonomy um, and, and yeah. like that independence. Yeah, but again, it's so subjective, right? Mm-hmm. Like, right. success is yes, really of the course, most, yeah. one of the most sub- subjective, like, word ever mm-hmm. yeah wow thank you um i guess to find to wrap up this conversation was the final question um do you have some advice for undergrad students specifically as where you are right now as a phd student as someone who's doing a startup as an entrepreneurship as someone who went mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. you know several degrees and just to find your aha moment in that in boston what are some of your advice to students right now just starting that their journey? So I would say like, depending on the student I'm talking about, if you're talking about right. undergraduate students, I would definitely say, you know, do not give up, continue to find what you want and continue to look for what you want to do. And then it's, it's, it's a long, it's still a long path, but you're going to get there, whether it's like you're going for a job or you're going for, for graduate studies after that mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. it's uh, it's just to not give up on what you want to do and sometimes you don't yeah. but don't give up on that you know continue to find it yeah. and then if you're talking about as graduate student i would definitely say like the biggest advice i would give to graduate students to talk to the pi and i think mm-hmm. to communicate and i think like because i think people forget that you know a lot of people think the PI as, as, as a boss, right? And yes. it, it is, it, it is their boss, right? It's like they, they hire them and, and, you know, I get it. But I think it's also important to look at he's a, this person is a mentor. Yes. So it's someone that wants the best for you, right? And of course, you're going to give me like a lot of specific situation when that was not the case. And that happens, unfortunately, mm-hmm. that like where it doesn't, it's not the case. But then when you find the good mentor, and I think that's where you need to, that's why I was talking like, you know, about one of the three biggest resources you can have for every researcher mm-hmm. is your PI mm-hmm. is because by communicating like 
all the time with your PI, you're just going to see that you thrive. You thrive mm -hmm. more. Like this yeah. person just want the best for you. They, they want you to su succeed in your PV. They want you to succeed in life. They want you to like, you know, deal, like to, to help you with a mental health problem, like find solutions for you. They, they, they here for everything. Like mm -hmm. I know for me talking about experience, um, Molly, like Professor Molly Sherkett was always been a, a huge, a huge pillar. Like, mm -hmm. like she's maybe um, my boss, like people would say, but then for me, she's really a leader. Like mm -hmm. she's a, an incredible leader where she, she really listened to her students. She really wants to take time for the, for discussing for the project. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, she helped me so much with like all the brainstorming about my project, mm -hmm. trying to understand what, what my interest lies. Right. And then, and I think trying to help me succeed in not only my life, my, my career, but also my life. And I think right. that's, that's something that people are missing sometimes is this kind of lack of communication with the supervisor. Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's a great point. I think it translates well to overwork. I mean, I'm working in, a, I'm working in an internship now and establishing that. I think sometimes there's a fine line with professionalism, like just knowing, I think it's, it can be hard with knowing how to do this in a professional context. If it was a friend or a professor, I think there's just so much more established norms that I'm familiar with, but learning that can be challenging. But when, when it happens, it's really rewarding because then there's, there, it feels like, you know, them um, beyond what, yeah. maybe what they produce. Absolutely. It's a, it's a crazy fine line. Like mm -hmm. there's no, there's no, that's why there's no rules about professionalism. You know, mm -hmm. you, of course you got, you can like, you know, if you go to big industry, they always have this training and of like how yeah. to be a professional, but then there is no really rules about that. And then yes. I think now that is not that you lose professionalism, but I think it's just part of the job. It's just part of the professionalism, just sharing yes. your fears, like and your doubts in your PhD and, and, and and communicating with your professor is, mm -hmm. is just really, really important. And I think yes. that people have this intimidation, which is normal because she's a, she or he is a yes. big professor, right? And you're like, oh, wow, I'm, I don't want to, like, I don't want her to think that I'm an idiot or mm -hmm. I don't want her to think I'm, I'm stupid or I don't know yes. this or I don't know that. But then at the end of the day, what they want is the best for you. Mm -hmm. So if you think that way, you're going to know that, like, you know, you're not going to be that intimidated but mm -hmm. you're just going to be like really like, you know, respectful and try to exchange more and to, to understand, you know, how this person can help you a lot, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Um, also, it helps if, I mean, when I worked in a lab, I was, I was a lot younger. I was in high school and I remember a medical student who worked at the lab. I shared my, I shared my fears about, I think that kind of communication bear. I didn't, I didn't know what was appropriate, like so-called appropriate and how to do it. And I think what she said was very, um, a little jarring, but also important to know. And she just said, you know, like you're in high school and you're working in a place where most people are either at least, I don't know, 20 years old, where they, they're at least an undergrad or their master's or PhD. So already, if you let them know you're, you're at, at this level of like high school or just some, someone who's less experienced, it kind of sets you up in a position where they don't expect a lot from you anyways. Um, yeah. and usually that's the case anyways, if, if, if your PI knows you that you're an undergrad, they're not going to expect many things from you. Um, if you're beginning in your role versus if you're four months in or eight months and you never asked a question and they're going to have higher expectations. So it'll be a little yeah. more odd if you, if you don't know basic things. Yeah. 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 For sure. For yeah. Sure. 
Cool. So that was really, really fun. I, I enjoyed this conversation. Um, and if students feel like they resonated really strongly with you, maybe they want to get in contact with you. How, how might they do that? Like, where can you be reached? Can you wish at my email or mm-hmm. like Willie email is like where I'm the most uh, present, I would say. And then like, even LinkedIn works really well. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Okay, so, great. Yeah. So we'll share those in our show notes. Um, sure. That was Michael Dang from the University of Toronto, chemical engineering PhD student. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. 